Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Ashland Huffman covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch, and in her latest story, she reported about allegations made by an Oklahoma Department of Corrections employee regarding some misconduct uh, among prison staff. Ashland, how did you find that story? So I was approached in January by Representative Justin Humphrey. He had bare minimum information. He said that there was an employee who had been fired after making allegations of sexual abuse at one of the women's prisons. And, uh, you know, a few months passed between uh, January, obviously, and now. Um, what, what took all the time? So initially it was just allegations. I had heard that there was this whistleblower book, but I had never seen it. I didn't have the name of the employee who made the allegations. Um, And so things like that took a lot of time. Eventually I was able to get the whistleblower book and the identity of the psychologist. All right. Now the uh, allegations that the psychologist made, as you reported, had to do with uh, sexual relationships between uh, prisoners and corrections employees, right? So uh, maybe you can explain a little bit uh, why that's illegal, even if it's consensual. So essentially, the corrections employees, they hold the key to the inmate's life is the way it's been explained to me. So because of the power dynamic, it's illegal to have sexual relations or any kind of relation with um, an inmate or a corrections officer. It was in 2003, Congress passed the Prison Elimination Act, which if you have any kind of sexual relationship, sexual harassment, all that would fall under the PREA Act. Now, uh, as is often the case on on a story like this, or sometimes things you know or suspect that you can't get into the story, did you uh, have anything in this one that didn't make it into print? Yeah, one question I did ask the Department of Corrections is how many allegations had resulted in charges being filed? I did not have that information at the time of the report, but I think that would be critical because the Department of Corrections is saying that none of this happened. And so it would be interesting to get my hands on that. And then the resignation letters, which is Dr. Lewis alleged the corrections employees were allowed to resign instead of face criminal charges. So getting my hands on those two things, I think, would be critical. All right. And just for context, uh, Dr. Lewis was a staff psychologist at the prison who um, got to know, obviously, uh, some of the inmates there who reported to her that uh, this inappropriate behavior was going on. She then went and reported that to the Department of Corrections and then she got fired. Correct. Yeah, it was she filed for whistleblower status five months before she had even been fired because she did have concerns about being terminated. And I believe six months after she made the first allegation, she had been fired. All right. Um, Is there a takeaway from the story that uh, maybe people should latch on to? Yeah. So Dr. Lewis was able to appeal or file a complaint against Um, her termination. And two judges actually ruled that the Department of Corrections needed to rehire Dr. Lewis because they said they fired Dr. Lewis for not reporting a prisoner's violent dream. However, the court proceeding indicated that she was wrongfully terminated. 
All right. So uh, where does Dr. Lewis stand now? Has she been rehired? Is she planning to go back? What's up with her? I spoke with Dr. Lewis last week and she said they are in the middle of litigation trying to figure out when she gets to start again and she will be getting her job back. She said that she's not necessarily excited because she is afraid of retaliation again, but she knows that the women there needed her. Right. And Dr. Lewis, you reported in your story, she wasn't uh, the only person who uh, had some allegations about this kind of inappropriate behavior, was she? No, there was another corrections employee who had said the same thing. And um, that corrections employee is no longer at Dr. Eddie Warrior. She is at a different prison. Okay, and the uh, the corrections officers who uh, inmates allege were abusing them, what's become of all of them? We have no idea. Um, I was told that they all resigned. Um, I have not been able to get a straight answer from the Department of Corrections on why they resigned or anything like that. Over what period of time and do we know about how many incidents there were that Dr. Lewis uh, initially reported? Yeah, so Dr. Lewis initially reported it in July of 2022 that they were not following up with the investigations. However, the alleged acts had happened starting back to the pandemic because there were some that happened in 2020 throughout her time. Dr. Lewis didn't bring attention to it until this year because she didn't realize that the women women were not being followed up with. So that's when she said that investigations were not being done. Um, I believe I was told it's up to 10 incidents at least. And uh, who's responsible to investigate that? Who did she report it to? So she reported it to Margaret Roper, who was the deputy warden at Dr. Eddie Correctional Facility. And then um, you're supposed to have the OIG, Oklahoma Office of Inspector Generals. They inspect all crimes within DOC. So an agent was assigned to the case and he was supposed to investigate it. And, and what happened with that? Did the investigation take place? Did they reach any conclusions? DOC said, the Department of Corrections said that investigation did take place and that the investigation determined that it was not accurate. That none of those allegations were uh, substantiated? Correct. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Ashlyn. You can read uh, Ashlyn's story about the allegations uh, at the prison and the misconduct on our website, oklahomawatch.org. After weeks of back and forth negotiations, GOP leaders on Monday agreed to a $785 million deal to provide additional public education funding. Democracy reporter Keaton Ross is here to share the latest. Keaton, where is most of the money in this plan going? So most of that $785 million, about $500 million is going uh, back into the state's school funding formula uh, those those that money will do things like give teachers a pay raise. Um, the funding formula has been tweaked a little bit to um, help out districts and, uh, you know, maybe rural parts of the state. Um, so a lot of that money is going back into the, the funding formula. And then there's a couple other components of it. But overall, uh, nearly eight hundred million dollars uh, in additional funding annually for schools. How do districts in, uh, say, rural and lower income areas stand to benefit? So it's it's in the weeds a little bit as far as the the technicalities of how it, the, it's going to get into the funding formula and go out. Uh, but essentially, uh, the way it's it's supposed to work is 
you know, if you're a rural rural district and you have school bus drivers out driving further out and using more gas than say uh, a district where everyone lives closer together, um, it's supposed to be tweaked a little bit to get uh, some more funds out to them, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and there's also about $125 million, I believe, going into the the Redbud Fund, which was uh, designed to help out schools that maybe have a harder time uh, getting funding for bond projects, that sort of thing. Um, so that's that's how they've they've structured it. Well, there's a teacher pay raise involved. How is that structured? So it's a minimum $3,000 a year raise uh, going up to $6,000 a year. Uh, that's for all certified staff. Um, so essentially it starts off with those with zero to four years of experience at, at the $3,000 raise. And then you go up to those with more than 15 years of experience, uh, get that $6,000 total. What about uh, support staff? Are they eligible to get a raise? Yeah. So certified support staff like nurses, counselors, speech pathologists uh, are eligible for that raise. Now, GOP leaders have also agreed on a school safety and security funding plan. How much will districts get and what are they supposed to do with that money? So that's set at $150 million over three years. So $50 million per year um, going out, uh, which averages out to about just short of $100,000 per district. Uh, That that money is supposed to be used, uh, say, if a school needs help getting a school resource officer, it could go towards that. It could go towards uh, security upgrades, that sort of thing. Um, So a little under over that three-year stretch, $300,000 going out to to every district for that. All right. We've heard a lot about potential tax credits and that kind of thing for uh, homeschool and private school parents. Does uh, this plan address any of that? So uh, what's, what's addressed in this plan is, is, uh, sort of tied to that uh, tax credit plan. Uh, House Speaker Charles McCall said yesterday that it's been tension. Uh, the House passed it a few, that plan a few weeks ago, and it's kind of been on hold. Uh, he said he's going to, to get that through into the governor's desk. Uh, so we can, we can expect that uh, to pass as well and, and to, to get going. All right. Now, the education plan is just part of a larger state budget for the upcoming fiscal year. Do we have an idea of when a comprehensive budget proposal might be released? Yeah, the education uh, piece of it was certainly uh, a major component, uh, the largest uh, the agency that gets the most funds out of the state budget. Uh, now that that's been uh, agreed to and settled, uh, we're talking on Tuesday morning. Uh, I think the expectation is that we'll get some kind of budget agreement uh, in the next couple of days uh, and that will get to the governor's desk uh, likely by the end of the week so the legislature can come back uh, and be sure to to have retain the authority to override any any vetoes before uh, the session is is constitutionally required to end. All right. When uh, when do we think this might get signed into law? Sounds like maybe the end of this week or sometime next week. Yeah. uh, End of this week, early next week. some sometime in that time frame, um, just they have to get they have to get their work done in the regular session by five p.m. on Friday, May twenty sixth, which is coming up here in about ten or eleven days. So a lot of work left ahead. 
All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters like Keaton. You can hear him here. You can read all his work on our website, oklahomawatch.org. And while you're there, be sure to also subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Reporter Paul Money's took an in-depth look at how private school tax credits might work and what accountability measures are in place if the legislature decides to send them on to Republican Governor Kevin Stitt. Paul, let's start with the status of this bill for private school tax credits. Uh, it's in kind of a parliamentary limbo, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a new package that came out that the Senate voted on and sent over to the to the House and kind of in an unusual move that I hadn't seen before in the times I've been at the Capitol. Uh, the House Speaker allowed that to come up to a vote. It passed. Then he kind of captured a vote um, and it changed the rules to allow him to hold that before sending it to the governor. So right now it's just kind of being sit, sitting there until some broader education funding packages get passed by the House and the Senate and it also get sent to the governor. All right. Now, remind us again how much the legislature wants to spend on those tax credits. Yeah. So this is probably over the next three years. They want to set aside about six hundred million dollars to make up for some of the revenue lost by giving these tax credits to parents for private schools. Uh, The first year would be 2024 and they earmarked earmarked the cap of one hundred fifty million dollars. Uh, second year, it goes up to $200 million. And the third year in 2026, it's a cap of $250 million. Well, how would that work? So this is a refundable tax credit, which means it's basically a one-for-one uh, decl- um, deduction from your tax bill. So if you owe a certain amount um, and you qualify for this amount of tax credit, it comes off directly off the top. It's not a, it's not a percentage of your income or anything like that. So it's a direct one-to-one uh, dollar. And so it's going to be quite valuable to a lot of taxpayers. Uh, essentially, it steps down from uh, $7,500 per child to $5,000 per child. And there's different income brackets that go through. And it's basically the top uh, at tax credit gets as an income bracket from zero to $75,000. And then it goes all the way up with a cap of $250,000 um, for the $5,000 tax credit. Now, uh, why has the GOP leadership gone for tax credits as opposed to vouchers for private schools? Yeah, so they've they've tried vouchers the last couple of years, um, and vouchers would be kind of direct payments to private schools themselves from the state. Uh, and there's concerns that that might uh, siphon off some funding from existing state uh, funding for higher edu- for uh, K twelve education. And so they've kind of gone the tax credit route. There's also been some issues about whether or not the state can actually directly fund uh, religious schools. And so to get around that, they basically came up with the the tax credit idea. And it's a deductible tax credit, which means that money never actually enters the private school directly from the government. It's a it's a payment uh, to the parents in as a reimbursement for their tuition for private school. All right. What uh, do some of the opponents have to say about the tax credits? Yeah, so many opponents are, are, are kind of thinking this is just basically a subsidy for people who have their kids already in private school. Uh, that's their main thing. They wonder why the state is actually setting aside money for this when they could be funding other parts of state government, including additional education funding for public education. Uh, and they're basically saying that the capacity of private schools right now uh, would not allow for a, a wholesale expansion to this level of folks that might qualify. And so this would be very much basically paying back a lot of people who already have children in private school. Now, the Oklahoma Tax Commission would oversee the program, right? Does it have any concerns? 
It does. And this was mentioned in debate in both the House and the Senate by some of the Democrats who were opposed. They basically said, look, there's not a ton of accountability tied with the actual law here. And they were told in response, basically, well, uh, the tax commission would be mostly in charge of this and will be in charge of making the administrative rules to kind of round out uh, this law. And basically, we're going to have to track it at that point. But of course, there's nothing much in the law other than maybe a broad, uh, you know, audit provision and maybe a, a, a report at the end of the year to see how many people took it. Uh, so other than that, the tax commission is kind of wondering what it's supposed to be doing and has a fiscal impact statement basically laying that out and its concerns. All right. Now, what's been the experience of other states that have approved tax credits or vouchers for private schools? Yeah, so this is not new uh, among many other states. So there's about 30 states with some kind of uh, voucher or tax credit for private schooling. Uh, now, not all of them have the income levels and caps that Oklahoma does. So Oklahoma will be pretty, pretty generous in that respect. And across the, the, the states, the st- state already has had a limited voucher program for children with disabilities that they can take that money earmarked for their child's, child's education um, and go to a private school that can take care of them maybe in a better way that the parents decide. Uh, but that's been very limited in the past for Oklahoma. Uh, Other states have done this in a broader way. In fact, Arizona voters uh, beat back a legislative effort a few years ago to do this there in that state and expand that to universal uh, vouchers. But then lawmakers kept trying in Arizona and finally passed it last year with outgoing Republican governor, uh, one of his last acts, pushing that uh, to the finish line. And then other uh, places have had vouchers like Florida, and in fact, Orlando Sentinel did a pretty good uh, package of stories several years ago looking at that state's voucher program, finding not a whole lot of accountability there. Uh, schools and strip malls, kind of fly-by-night situations of schools popping up and, and going away, and then not being able to track very well the, the outcomes of these kids in these private schools that came up. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, You can read all of Paul's coverage of the educational tax credits on our website, OklahomaWatch.org, where you will also find all his work on state government. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.